Welcome to the show. Thanks for tuning in. We've got uh, Ron Keel today, the metal cowboy. Uh, so Ron started his career with Steeler, and he played with Ingve Malmsteen, uh, who's a pretty famous guitarist. Um, I thought he was one of the top guitarists, maybe not, but uh, uh, anyways, he played with him, and uh, Ron. So then Ron started his own band, uh, Keel, and they had a couple albums produced by Gene Simmons from Kiss. Uh, they toured with Aerosmith, Motley Crue, Van Halen, sold millions of records. They had a long career. Um, he's done a lot in his career, and uh, we'll have him tell the whole story from beginning to end here. It's going to be a fun little journey. So enjoy this interview with Ron Keel. Welcome, Ron Keel, to the Chuck Shoot Podcast. Uh, so again, I just want to say uh, welcome and uh, point out that, yeah, you originally uh, started doing music in school. You won awards uh, for jazz band, but you did school orchestra. So you, you started out not doing heavy metal, basically. I was addicted to music from a very early age. And the first chance I got to join the school band in the fifth grade, I jumped at the chance and uh, continued my training both in, in jazz, uh, classical music. We were playing Motown and funk and a lot of horn music, Chicago, and, and a lot of the Stevie Wonder tunes and, and just uh, a, a very diverse menu of music that I was raised on. My dad was a country guy, my hillbilly family. And my dad, Roy, he was hardcore country, and he would listen to Merle Haggard and Cash and Hank Sr. My sister, who was 10 years older than me, was a teenager by the time I was two or three years old, and she was listening to the Beatles and the Stones. And so I got a, a, a huge uh, variety of, of great music during the 60s when I was growing up. And the first chance I got to play an instrument in the school band was uh, extremely liberating, and it was uh, the start of a, an amazing ride. I loved playing the drums and all the horned instruments. I learned to read music. I was classically trained and able to compete uh, as a school musician with uh, some of the orchestras, bands, jazz bands. I was in the marching band at the football games. I mean, anything musical, I was drawn to it, and I still am. So you were kind of like a band nerd, or were you like one of the cool band kids? Like, did you get bullied or like harassed or teased or anything like that? Or I did, because oh. at the time, I was thin and uh, fairly unhealthy uh, as a child. So I wasn't able to participate in athletics or sports. Now I'm a sports junkie, but at the time, I wasn't able to participate. Even though I was the biggest kid in school, I was 6'4", and the at the eighth grade. What do you mean you're un so, unhealthy? That's uh, a long story, man. I mean, you don't want to get into my medical records or anything, but the doctors told my mother when I was, she was six months pregnant with me. They said, your baby's dead in the womb. We're going to remove it. And she said, no, nah, I think I'll stick it out. And I was born uh, in, a, in a very toxic environment. Both my parents smoked heavily and did not eat healthy at all. And the sixties, that was, I mean, even the doctors smoked cigarettes in the, the office when in the sixties, it was yeah. totally different. Um, I was, uh, just, uh, sickly unhealthy and not uh, physically fit until hmm. I, I gained adulthood. And I think I'm more fit now than I, than I was back then. That's for sure. Yeah. You look great. And music was my salvation. Man. That's music good. was, music was a way for me to, uh, to fit in and to be cool. I was, I was a nerd or a geek, uh, and, uh of the highest degree. And, the first time I sat behind a drum set, picked up a pair of sticks, I started carving out a beat. And it just felt like uh, I had that natural rhythm 
and affinity for music in general. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, the girls thought I was cool, and uh, it, it was uh, just uh, the first steps on what's become a, an extremely long and rewarding journey. No, so yeah, so I heard conflicting th- things about this. Was it age 14 or 16, you actually left home, dropped out of school, and joined a band? I was already in bands at that time, but okay. I did leave home at 16. My parents pretty much realized that that this is what I'm, I was going to do, and, mm-hmm. and they even uh, asked my music teacher, Mr. George Schmidt, who just passed away six months ago. He was like a second father and a mentor to me. They asked him to come to the house and try and talk sense into me. And he came to the house and, and we went back in my bedroom where I had guitars and drums and amplifiers and PA systems. And he sat there in my room and, and tried to talk me out of it, telling me all the pitfalls and all the, the how, how tough a road it was to try and become a professional musician and devote your life to this. And I was adamant, you know, this is what I'm going to do and this is who I am. And he walked out of the room and went out into the living room and told my parents, he, he said, you've got a musician on your hands. So you're going to have to deal with it. And they did and pretty much gave up on me when I decided I'm not staying here. I'm, I'm leaving and I'm going on the road with a band. And they actually signed what's called an emancipation document, which allowed me to live on my own, sign for my own medical care, put myself through, through high school and be able to legally sign my own legal documents. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until uh, probably six or seven years later when I started to have some success in the business, when they they realized that I wasn't gonna I wasn't gonna stop. And I had a band called Keel, and they thought that was pretty cool. Yeah, didn't they, you say dad, your your dad thought it was named after him or something? That, uh, it's kind of a joke, really. But <laughs> it's he, pretty funny. He took it very seriously. That's cool. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, my my dad and my mom ended up becoming my biggest fans, and they they lived that dream with me throughout the entire eighties heyday and all the, the amazing accomplishments that, uh, I mean, the, uh, the opportunity to, to prove to them that I was right and that I could make a living at this and I could be successful at this was well, very rewarding. Yeah. You, you must've had some pretty big balls at age 17 at 17. I was kind of a scared little nerdy kid, but you were 17. You're working construction in Texas and you arranged this meeting with a guy at MCA Records who it wasn't even like the A&R or c- promotional uh, record part. It was like the shipping and receiving. But somehow you're like, this guy works with records. I'm going to get in touch with this guy. And you arranged a meeting with him. And this guy like is like believed in you. So then he got some other guy from MCA Records, a higher up to meet with you and tell that story. I see you've done your homework. Chuck. Yeah, have you, yeah. Have you read the book or what? I've not read the uh, book so- yet. No, I've just seen some interviews and I'm like, there's so much fascinating stuff. I didn't know any of this stuff. I did all this for the interview and I'm like, this is a great story. Uh, we're just reading the audio book to you and, and your listeners and viewers on the Chuck Shoot podcast. But yeah, that's it's a true story. I went back to Texas to, to work a job with my dad in Mount Pleasant, Texas where I went to my junior year in high school. This is when I finally had had enough of farm living. Uh, we were on, on a ranch in Texas and I needed the big city lights and I needed the, the, the rock and roll atmosphere and it just wasn't there for me in Texas. But um, I am going back to the same place next year for a show. I'm going to return to my old stomping grounds in Mount Pleasant, Texas. It's 118 miles east of Dallas. Wow. Uh, so I'm going back for a show and I'm going to see some of those old high school classmates who, who still follow me and stay in touch, which is pretty cool. But it's cool. Uh, 
at the time, I was working this construction job with my dad and making really good money. We're busting our ass. I mixed 27 tons of concrete by hand that summer. But during my time on that job, I started going through the phone book. That's what we used before we had Google. Chuck, we had a right. phone no, book. No, I remember, yeah. <laughs> and I went in the through, 80s. And I saw, I, I, for some reason, I saw record companies in the phone book. I said, well, that's cool. I'd like to have a record so deal. So smart. Right? So I started calling them at the A's, you know, A&M or, or Arista <laughs> or whatever. I started wow. calling them. And they would say, I'd say, hey, I'm Ron Keel. I'm a 17-year-old singer, songwriter, musician. I'd like to have a record deal. Can you put me in touch with somebody? And they would say, now, this is just a shipping and distribution outlet. We don't have any A&R staff or anybody in the creative department here. Yeah. Uh, but thanks for calling. And they'd hang up. And I just went down the list. I got to MCA Records. M. I got to the M's. And uh, I talked to the, the same the same pitch. Uh, I'm Ron Keel. I'm a singer-songwriter, musician. I'd like to have a record deal. Who should I talk to? And they said, hold on, please. They put me in touch with this guy. This is Brad Hunt from MCA Records. And and I told him the same thing. I'm, I'm looking for a record deal, right? And he says, well, uh, can you meet me at 4 o'clock on Thursday in my office in Dallas? I said, okay. You know, it was a 118-mile drive, and I bought a business suit. And I had a really nice promo kit with these color 8x10 photos and a demo tape with four songs on it that I wrote the songs. I played all the instruments, drums, guitar, bass, vocals. I did all this myself. Uh, and I went into his office and I put my my pitch on his table. He listened to the cassette tape and he looked at my color eight by ten live shots and all the stuff that I had prepared. And he says, "Look, kid, this is just a shipping and distribution <laughs> office. You know, there's no A and R here, but I, I can't help you. Yeah, I know somebody who can." And he got on the phone right then and there with Leon Tasillas, who was one of the A and R guys at MCA in Nashville. He says, Leon, I got this kid here in my office. He's going to be a star someday. Can you help him? And Leon says, yeah, get him to Nashville and we'll cut a demo. And that's how I ended up going to Nashville at the age of 17 with a guitar, a notebook, uh, a really nice suit and a pocket full of dreams. Wow. And so then they passed on your music because they said it was too heavy or too primal. I mean, this was like 1979. So heavy metal had not. Yeah. yeah, it was. My music was like Bob Seger or the Eagles or you know, Tom Petty at the time. Uh, certainly wasn't country. But nowadays, though, those lines have been blurred and, and music sure. like Bob Seger or Tom Petty or the Eagles is certainly resonates with the country audience as well. But in 79, it did not. But I fell in love with Nashville and I felt that musical vibe at the time. I was the first, all the, now Nashville is full of all the heavy metal and hard rock guys. Yeah. yeah. As you probably know. Yeah. But I was the first guy to go there and uh, there was no rock scene at all. There were two bands and I joined one of them. Taboo. Won a Battle right? of the Bands contest. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I'm on the radio and, and making records. And that was what catapulted me into the world of hard rock and heavy metal. Okay. That, or that was Lust. So you started with Taboo, right? And then and then you ended up joining Lust, right? Isn't that what happened? That's correct. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me the story, too. Um, this is, uh, is kind of crazy. You were in that band Taboo. And uh, this is a lesson that you learned that was pretty crazy because your keyboard player, he just dropped dead at 23 years old, some sort of aneurysm or brain hemorrhage or something. And that kind of taught you a lesson that life is short and you never know this could be your last song. Probably the most valuable lesson I've ever learned in my journey, my travels or my career was that night 
in Nashville at rehearsal. I was 19 at the time. And we were rehearsing and Kevin, uh, the keyboard player, who was the musical director of the band and uh, literally just a, a, an amazing talent, an amazing human being. There were no drugs involved. He had a hereditary disease that he didn't even know he had, but he had a cerebral hemorrhage and a heart attack at the same time, right, right there mm. in front of everybody in, in rehearsal. And that taught me a lesson that has stayed with me till to this very day and, and will always be a part of me. Play every song like it's your last because you never know when that, when your time is up, you just never know. And I've instilled that work ethic and that philosophy in, into everything that I've done. And it's certainly paid off for me. I enjoy every moment, every song, every discussion like this, every, every show, every, everything that I do, I, I, I live life to the fullest and enjoy it as much as I possibly can, because we're all on a one day contract. You have no guarantee that we're going to be, any of us are going to be here tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to fulfill my end of the deal today, tomorrow, as long as I possibly can. But that lesson that I learned that day, probably the most profound and uh, important lesson that I've ever learned was the yeah. day that I, and I've lost a lot of friends along the way as well as, as we know, you know, I host a weekly radio show, as you probably know, Chuck, mm -hmm. and, and almost every week I'm doing an obituary mm. of people that are, are you know, our heroes and friends and contemporaries and peers are, are passing. I mean, I've lost a, a number of, of dear friends this year alone, uh, none from COVID, but from life yeah. and death. And so uh, every, you know, the, the longer we live, the more we lose. And those, those people continue, those people that I love, my mentor, George Schmidt, my music teacher, as I said, and, and some dear friends and bandmates and heroes and so many have passed uh, this year and in, in years gone by. And you just never know when you're going to open up social media and see another one yeah. bit in the dust. So that's why I live every day to the oh, fullest and oh. enjoy life. I continue to, to thrive and create and, and just, uh, just, I know I don't take any of it for granted. No, for sure. Yeah. No, my grandpa said the same thing. He lived in 91. He said, that's the hardest part about getting older is that the older you get, the more people, you know, die. So that's the tough thing. But um, anyways, going back to your story. So then you end up joining this band lust. I thought this was interesting because they asked you to try out. And so you showed up and you walked in and there was another singer and you, you kind of were hesitant. And it was actually your wife at the time that like had to like kind of push you through to like, no, 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 let's, let's, you know, you need to go try out. And then that's kind of interesting for like, you had such gall before. What, what was it? Did you just think it wasn't maybe a good fit for you at that time or cause then no, you it's ended a great, up. It's a, it's a great story, Chuck. Yeah. And the fact is uh, we, we didn't have GPS back then. And these guys were rehearsing in a school auditorium way out in the middle of Murfreesboro, Tennessee, outside of Nashville, and the directions I had were sketchy. Uh, they had called me. We had met at a concert, to, to, to tell you the full story. Yeah. Uh, we had met at a concert, and I was always dressed for success. I went to see uh, Rush. I think Saxon was the opening act that night. And I had on, you know, I had my big hair and uh, the leather boots and the leather jacket and the scarves. And, you know, I was all decked out like a late 70s, early 80s rock star already. And they uh, they looked at me and they, these guys, long haired guys came up to me and said, hey, man, are, are you a singer? 
I go, yeah, you know, I am a singer. And they gave me their number and I gave them my number and we kind of parted ways. And they called me a, a, a week later or so. I'd heard them on the radio during this radio contest. KDF, the rock station at the time, was doing a battle of the bands playing the contestants on the local music show on Sunday night. And I'd heard their their track and it sounded fantastic, man. That 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 was like a cross between ACDC and Judas Priest and really heavy well-produced, really good singer on the demo. And I thought, man, that's cool. And I actually voted for him. I called the radio station yeah. and voted for Lust. So the next day they called me and said, look, man, we were on the radio last night. And I'm like, yeah, I heard it. It was fantastic. It was kick-ass. They said, we, we've got to do this battle of the bands Sunday night. We've got to play live and we need a singer. I said, what about the singer that's on the demo? He sounded great. He says, well, that's our drummer, and the because the, oh. they didn't have a singer, oh, okay. the drummer had had sang the lead vocal on the demo, but they needed a front man to perform live. They'd never done a gig, and I said, "No, nah, man, that's you know that sounds great. I love it, but it's really not my you know it's not not where I'm at, uh, and I don't think I could. Uh, it's it wasn't for me." And I hung up, and they called back an hour later. Come on, man, you know you got to do this. We you're a rock star. We need you. And they, they, I said, ah, oh, it's, it's not really for me, man. You know, that screaming heavy metal thing, you know. They called back every three hours, and they called back the next day. And finally, I said, all right, all right, I'll do it. So uh, they said, well, we're, we're auditioning singers tonight, man. Come on out. we got a couple other guys coming out, but we want you to come out, and, and we want, to, want you to sing with us tonight. So I got lost on the way, and I was two hours late, all right? That's the, the Jeep getting back to the no GPS yeah. Faux pas. Uh, I go up to the door and there's a, a door to this auditorium with a round glass window. And my first wife was with me at the time. And I'm all dressed up in my rock star gear. I look through the window and I listen. You can hear them through the walls. Man, the guy sounded great. The guy they had, uh, whoever it was, was you know, really, really good vocal tone and he was standing there reading the lyrics off of a sheet, but he, he said it good. And I, I just turned to her and I said, it sounds like they've already got somebody, man. Let's just go home. She goes, no, you go in there. You go in there. I go, ah. She pushed me through the door. All right. So I go in and of course I'm all six foot four leather boots and leather jacket and big hair. And you know, I just kind of walked in and uh, all the heads turned. The, there's probably all the girlfriends or, brothers and sisters or whoever was sitting in folded chairs out there and the guys are on stage and they looked at me and they got, they got done with the song and they looked down at me and said, uh, you know, Hey, thanks for coming, man. But we, you know, we've already found somebody. I said, Hey man, sounds great. You guys are awesome. Can I just stick around and watch? And the bass player goes, look at him. The guy's a rock star. Give him a shot. Let's hear him. So they said, all right, you know, you want to come up and, and give it a try. Uh, I took the lyric sheet that the guy was looking at, and he was just standing there reading the lyric sheet and singing, and he sang, sang really well. I took the lyric sheet, memorized the lyric top to bottom, crumpled it up, threw it at him, and said, okay, <laughs> let's do it. And I grabbed the mic stand, and I started flailing the mic stand and rocking it out. And, just, and the other guy just left. He knew that he couldn't, he couldn't measure up to that. It yeah. was that rock star. It was that performer, that entertainer, that rock star who commanded and hopefully still does. You've got to command the room. That's your job as the front man 
when you grew up listening to and watching people like David Lee Roth and Paul Stanley and, and you know, the list goes on. That's what is expected of a front man in a situation like that. And I delivered the goods and I joined the band. We did the show that Sunday night. And for the first time, I walked out on stage and saw a packed house of probably 300 people. It was packed at this club in Nashville with their fists in the air, everybody rocking out. And uh, it was a, an amazing thrill, a rush like I've never felt or I'd never felt before. I felt it again since many yeah. times. But uh, that was the first time I felt that rush. And I thought, this hard rock, heavy metal thing, this is pretty cool, man. I think I'm yeah. going to get on this thing and ride it as far as I possibly can. I I love hard rock and, and metal music. Don't get me wrong. It wasn't just me assuming a role. I, I, I loved Deep Purple, Led Zeppelin, Kiss, Alice Cooper, all those hard and heavy bands of the 70s. And uh, it was a, a, a true joy to put myself into that role and take it to well, to the next band, Steeler, and then to Los Angeles. And, right. Uh, yeah. So Keel. let's and talk the, about the that. This goes on and the, you were, the, story, the story continues. Yeah. So you were quit. You quit or you were fired from Lust. Uh, it's kind of debatable. That sounds like they were going to fire you. So you quit. And then you started this band Sniper. What is it? <laughs> nice. Nice. So Keel you started all. this band Sniper or you joined Sniper and then they moved. They changed the name to Steeler. They moved to L.A. And uh, you guys moved to L.A. and then Mike Varney from Shrapnel Records recruited Ingve Malmsteen, who if people don't really, you know, some of the people listening to my show might not know a lot of rock history or some of these names, but he is he one of the top guitarists of all time? I mean, he's got to be up there in the top 10, right? Would you say? I mean, just based on ability, maybe not your pleasure working with him. Maybe that was difficult, but I'm saying just based on guitar ability, he's got to be up there, right? Ability to do what? To play the guitar. <laughs> well, you know, I guess that's a matter of opinion. Uh, I wouldn't put him in my top 10. Really? Top 20? I don't rate him. And my my job here on your show, Chuck, is to not not to rate okay. Bay Malmsteen. You know, really. I mean, you know, he was an amazing talent. He still is. Yeah. We did our first album together, which became the biggest selling independent record of all time. Right. And put both of our careers on track. Oh, for sure. The success that we've had since. But uh, yeah. um, didn't work out. He was in the band for uh, uh, during the sessions and it did, we did a great record. We just celebrated the 37th anniversary of the release of that album just a couple of days ago. It's yeah. A milestone in, in my life and my my history. And I'm really proud that that record was a cornerstone of that era and that genre really set September 25th, 1983 uh, in, in the early eighties in the heyday of that Hollywood hard rock and metal scene would spawn quiet riot, Motley Crue, mm-hmm. me, Ingve, and, and so many others that uh, had the opportunity to, to be heard at the time. And some of us are still making noise. Yeah, for sure. And then um, you're going to go on to start keel, but before you do that, you had, you make a brief little pit stop, uh, in a very short time, you're in Black Sabbath. That's that's a pretty well-known band, too. So tell us the story there. You guys recorded a demo that people can actually hear on your Patreon if they want to sign up for that, right? That's correct. Uh, it, for a very brief time, uh, I was uh, you know, in that circle and, and in Black Sabbath. And not, not just a pretty well-known band, the most iconic heavy metal band of all time. Yes. And it was an amazing opportunity. 
to uh, to experience that, to meet with Tony and Geezer and their management. I got the job based on uh, some demos that I had cut and never had the chance to perform or tour with them. But I was able to last year release uh, an album called Emerald Sabbath with a bunch yeah. of Black Sabbath alumni, guys that are former members or members of the extended Black Sabbath family. And I got to cut three songs on that Emerald Sabbath album with uh, Rudy Sarzo on bass, who was longtime Ozzy, Whitesnake. Yeah, Quiet I've Ryan, had him on my show. On. Yeah, great guy. Uh, Vinny Apice on drums, DC Cawthorn from the Ron Keel Band on guitar. And I got to do three songs on that record. Uh, an Ozzy song, Hole in the Sky, Trashed, an Ian Gillen song, from Born Again and a Ronnie James Dio song, Die Young, which we filmed a great music video for, which you can see at ronkeel.com. So I'm really proud that that brief encounter with Black Sabbath is still a part of my, my history and still a part of my activities to this day. And, and I enjoy revisiting that. I enjoy the challenge of singing those songs and living up to the hype of, of that, uh, that brief yeah. Moment in time in 1980. Definitely a good resume builder. But so then you decided, and actually I think Geezer, Geezer and, Ta- and Tony had come to see your band Keel. You're like, okay, I guess we'll do one show. And I think they kind of saw that and they're like, this guy's like doing his own thing. We're going to do like the dark metal and you were kind of doing a different sound. So you started this band Keel. How did you find, uh, you said you were an older, wiser, more experienced person at this age at 24. How did you find the guys to be in Keel? Did you know them from the LA scene or... Well, each each person in that original Keel lineup came to me in a different way. Mm. Some of them I knew, and some of them were introduced to me. I mean, uh, I've always been really lucky and really fortunate that amazing, talented people have. Uh, I've just been really lucky to find them and have them uh, have their paths cross with mine yes mark ferrari who was the lead guitar player in keel yeah and uh, the still uh, an original member who was part of that core nucleus at the very start in march of 1983 uh still a, a very dear friend of mine and an amazing musician songwriter and and uh human being so uh i i i, I didn't really find them a lot of them found me uh, that's and, cool just uh, was was extremely blessed, extremely fortunate. I still am at this at this time in my life to to have the guys in the Ron Keel band. And, uh, I was able to create my dream team here, and and we've had the band for for five years now, and uh, we've had some amazing success, some some really good times and bad times <laughs> the last five years with this project that uh, I'm currently completely devoted to yeah. the Ron Keel band. So in that original record, The Right to Rock, 85, Gene Simmons produced it. That's pretty cool. I had a question, though. Steve Riley, I didn't know. I, I realized that he played drums on that record. He's been in L.A. Guns and Wasp, and he played with Keel. I mean, how does that guy keep finding all these good... Like, I feel like if you find one good band in your life, like, that's pretty amazing. He found three, like, heavy metal, like, legendary... Like, what is it about that guy? Do you have any theory as to how that guy keeps, like, surviving and, like, per- persevering? Well, he's uh, he's driven. Let's put it that way. Uh, yeah. Stephen was always driven to succeed and to play. And uh, if you uh, he preparation is uh, is is great. I mean, you've got to be ready for those opportunities when they knock. Stephen left Keel to join Wasp mm. uh, right after the sessions were done, 
and okay. then uh, spent a long time in LA Guns, as you probably know. That yeah. There's still two versions of LA Guns. Right. Steve's yeah. version and the other version. Sure. But he's a good dude, man. He's a great player. And uh, uh, I was glad that uh, we were able to cross paths and we, we continue to see each other and, and do a show together from time to time in events like the Monsters of Rock Cruise where Steven, uh, his band, he was in LA Guns at the time and, and Keel was on the cruise and Steven came up and sang the right to rock with me on stage. Oh, that's uh, cool. It was probably what, 2014, yeah. I think, but uh, a great guy and uh, great players like that. Yeah, three, I mean, yeah, he's had, I've had more great bands, I think, than Steven has. I mean, I've been super fortunate, as, I, yeah, as I've mentioned, that's true. to have Steeler, Keel, Iron Horse, Fair Game, Saber Tiger, now the Ron Keel Band. So many projects that I'm extremely proud of and, and blessed to have uh, to have been able to steer the ship yeah as the captain of those projects and bring some great music to the to the audience and the listeners through the years yeah absolutely so 85 that was a good year because you had that uh debut album and then you guys went back to nashville and you headlined the biggest concert of the summer there you had steppenwolf and autograph opening for you and you ran into those lust guys that had fired you or whatever and but that was cool i heard a story you like you invited them back on the bus you're like hey guys come on on and like that that must have been a good feeling for you to kind of like you made it at that point well, I think we need to fill in some of the blanks. There, oh, sorry. Chuck, if, sorry. If, if you would, because if you're going to go back to that time with lust, yeah, I was about to get fired. We had, we had recorded you know, the happy story. Yeah. We, we got a record and we're, we're on the radio. The, the problem was I sucked and I didn't know how to sing. Hmm. And I was still extremely green and learning my craft. I am not a naturally talented singer. This is a skill that I learned and perfected and worked right. hard to achieve. They did not think that I would ever be able to front uh, a national act or to sing a good lead vocal, a master vocal in the recording studio. They did not believe that that was possible. And they were going to fire me with good reason. Because mm -hmm. vocally, I was I was not, I wasn't anything close to the guy that I walked in and replaced. Just to put it that way. The guy who had the lyric sheets. The, the lyric sheet, yeah. I got the gig because I was a rock star. You had the moves and the look, but not the sound yet. And we cut a record uh, that ended up being played on the radio in Nashville extensively, that that uh, homegrown album, my first album appearance ever. And it would, it would make me cringe every time I heard it on the radio because it was absolute garbage. And it still is. The fans, they <laughs> overlook some of the, the faults or okay. shortcomings of that recording because it's on YouTube and it's pretty much common knowledge. Now, unfortunately, I wish we could bury it because it's absolute garbage. They were going to fire me. Okay. Uh, rather than get fired because the bass player said, Hey man, you know, he was my friend. He said, Hey, the guys, they're going to fire you tomorrow. I said, all right, thanks for the heads up. So I quit. And of course, what it was, what, uh, Four years later, Four I come back later. to Nashville. I'm a signed act, and I'm headlining the biggest event of the year in Nashville, One for the Sun, as you mentioned, Autograph, Steppenwolf, Van Zandt, opening up for us, my big homecoming show, coming back triumphantly to my old stomping grounds, to Nashville. And the tour bus pulls up outside the, the venue, and I see the guys in my old band and my ex-wife too, my ex-wife and all the guys in my old band. I see them, they're waving to the bus and I'm in the bus. Going, yeah, that's I said, Hey, pull over. And the bus driver pulls over. I said, Hey, 
Come on in. Come on in. And I invited them all on the bus. This is the guy that they were gonna they were gonna fire. This is the guy that my ex-wife used to yell at whenever I'd pick up my guitar. Put that damn thing down. Okay. And, and these guys in this band that, that they didn't think I had had it, and they were gonna fire me. And I didn't rub it in. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. we're still actually friends uh, to this day with with Ken Kennedy and and the guys in that Lust band. They realized, I think, that hey, you know, we probably should have kept this guy because he turned out to. Yeah. So it turns out he did know what he was doing, and, and I did eventually learn to sing many years later. But don't you think that made it might have been a motivator for you in a way too? That these guys, you wanted to prove them wrong in a way, right? I mean, no, I wanted to prove my mom and dad wrong, and everybody else that ran me out of town. Uh, I wanted to sing, yeah. Chuck. I yeah. just wanted to sing, and I heard a voice in my head that I liked, but when I heard it back on tape or or it, I, it, I had to learn how to control that instrument. I had to have training. I had to have a lot of practice and hard work, trial and error, and learn because everybody, Chuck, can sing. Sure. Everybody really? is born with the same tools: the the lungs, the larynx, the mouth, the jaw. Then we've all got the same tools. Anybody can sing. Those of us who really want to sing for a living are the ones who take that. And it's for some, it's a gift. Mm -hmm. Some people are born with that natural, beautiful tone and pitch and, and talent. I was one of those guys that uh, just really wanted to do it so badly that just like any skill, hammering, no, none of us are born learning how to take apart a, a, a car engine and put it back together. You don't know how to uh, hammer nails or build houses or all the skills that, that we were all, we all, those are all acquired skills for me singing is one of those. Mm -hmm. And I'm proud, I'm proud that I stuck it out and I did not give up. Of course, I learned a lot along the way playing other instruments, guitar, drums, yeah. bass, and uh, all the classical instruments as, as well, uh, tuba, French horn, trumpet. And uh, so I, I, I've always had that creative urge and that energy to create and to, to sing. And uh, a lot of it is practice. A lot of people will ask me in interviews, like this, how are you still doing it at a, a fairly high level at my age? I'm 60 years old. And the reason I'm able to still do it on that same level is that I, I practice a lot and mm -hmm. I still work extremely hard at it. Three hours a day, I heard. That's correct. Yeah. If I can. Um, and I have a rehearsal room here at home yeah. and I will go through the entire show top to bottom uh, I sing often, and I always, uh, and I'm always talking, doing interviews, hosting my radio show. It keeps my voice in shape for sure. So, I mean, your hard work paid off. '85, you guys were named the best new band from Circus, Hit Parader, Rock Scene magazines. I mean, three different places said you're the best new band. Um, and you had the first two albums you had were Gene Simmons produced. Now, did he? Did you learn a lot of this work ethic stuff from him? Did he teach you a lot? You said he, he's one of the biggest influences on your career. Now, my dad taught me the work ethic. He was my dad. Roy was a hardworking, all-American, hard-drinking, hard-partying construction worker, uh, who was always the first man on the job site. He kicked ass all day long, and he was the last man to leave. And he partied his ass off when he was done working. <laughs> he got back up the next day and wow. he did it all over again. I learned the work ethic from my dad. Okay. I learned the marketing and the ah. business a lot from Gene, and that's yeah. why there are 
47 items available in the store <laughs> at ronkeel.com. Uh, we uh, even have a, where's my, where's my Ron Keel lunchbox? I have one. You have the lunchbox? Do you have the Keel casket yet? Cause Kiss has the casket. No, but I, I'm sure I'm, I'm not far off. Okay. That. I think I've got another 20, 30 years to go before I, I hit the casket. Yeah. So but you can bury me in one of the Kiss caskets. That's no, actually cool. going to be cremated. I don't, I don't, and I, I, I'm, I'm just shove me in the oven when I'm done. And until then, I'm going <laughs> to scream. And well, let's hope that's a ways away. Let's up. let's not think about that. But your third yeah, album. You're still in 1985, man. We got a long way to go. Yeah, we got a long way to go. The casket. Third <laughs> album, uh, Keel, self-titled, produced by Michael Wagner. Oh, one of my favorite producers because he's done the Skid Row albums, which I love. He's done the, uh, the Warrant uh, Dog Eat Dog underrated album, in my opinion. Uh, and he mixed for Metallica, Ozzy, Alice Cooper. Like, what does he like to work with coming from Gene Simmons? Like what's it, what's the difference or. The difference was Michael was more hands-on. He was actually, uh, you know, the one who dialed in the sounds and he was more technical with the gear and the microphones and the digital technology. That was our first album that was recorded digitally in 87. But one thing they both have in common was that they were both fearless and they would try anything. Hmm. Gene taught me that. It taught me so many lessons about making records that stayed with me to this day. Uh, Gene Simmons would, would be very prepared, especially in terms of the kick drum and the bass guitar patterns, how those instruments worked in tandem. Uh, he would, t- he taught me how to be well rehearsed and prepared when you hit the studio, but also to be, flexible enough to stay creative. And if you have an idea on the spot, man, let's just try it and and improvise or add a a section to a song here and there. Michael was very much the same way. He was unafraid to try anything and and push the envelope and use different recording techniques or different microphones or different environments or different aspects of the technology, which was still evolving at the time. Yeah. So one of the things he did is uh, you took uh, on the one of the songs, you took 75 voices on the first track and you doubled it 100 times. So there was 1500 tracks of background vocals. And that, and that apparently that's a Guinness a world record or something for most background something like vocals. That. Uh, uh, you do the math. Yeah. There were 75 voices. I'm not sure how many times we doubled and multi-tracked it and you found some down. <laughs> it sounds did, uh, cool. It's massive. It's yeah. absolutely massive. And we, we just thought at the time, I, I love that about Michael, uh, those huge anthem choruses and background vocals, which we had on all those 80s records and still have uh, on my albums to this day. We'll stack background vocals. We'll stand around the mic and we'll, we'll double track, triple, quadruple, have the guys move positions. Every time you do a new track, everybody moves so they're at a different angle uh, onto the microphone. And that stacking, you start with the, the root then you'll do the high part and you'll do the low part and then you'll double all of those. And just that stacking technique of, of those big, huge anthem chorus background vocals has been a trademark of my music uh, since back in the day. Yeah. So it sounds like the, it was a pretty good time for you. You toured with Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, Dio, Queensryche, Aerosmith, Van Halen. I mean, was there any band that you didn't tour with in the 80s that was big? I mean, that seems like everybody. We never toured with Kiss. Ah. <sighs> Even though Gene Simmons produced, he didn't have you guys open or something? That would have been a good idea, I thought. I, I, I urged Gene many times to take us out on tour. Yeah. He declined. However, he would get on the phone and push buttons for us. I remember him calling Ozzy 
Because oh. in Ozzy, I've got this band Keeley. You have to take them on tour with you next year. And Ozzy goes, oh, go this band Metallica. I think I won't take Metallica. And she says, no, you got to take Keel. Ozzy chose Metallica in the long run, but it wasn't because oh. Gene, Gene was fighting for us every step of the way. And he did a lot for us pushing buttons in the industry. I remember when we did the Final Frontier album cover, it was extremely expensive. And it's it's one of the most iconic album covers in 80s, uh, in, in, in the 80s album cover gallery because it's got the twin towers you know the the world trade center in the background with the new york skyline and the keel logo is the spaceship rising up out of the new york harbor with the statue of liberty in the background and, and the album cover was uh, extremely expensive it was airbrushed art not computer graphics they didn't do that stuff in 86 it was hand painted by john taylor dismukes and he sent us a bill of $15,000, which was a lot of money back in the day. Still is a lot of money. And I knew that there was no way I was going to get MCA to pay for it. They're never going to foot the bill. Fifteen grand for an album cover? Are you kidding me? So I called Gene. I said, Gene, I need you to come to this meeting with me and unveil the new album cover for MCA Records. So they had this big meeting in the boardroom there at MCA in, in Hollywood, uh, and all of the executives were seated in a circle around this conference table. And Gene Simmons walks in with the big master artwork on an easel covered up with a sheet. And he puts it down in front of him and he pulls the sheet off, unveils the album cover. He says, this is your album cover. It's going to cost you $15,000. And they said, okay. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, God bless him, man. He pushed a lot of buttons for me. He taught me a lot too. And we're still, uh, I'd like to think there's a, a special relationship with Gene and I. I know the last time I saw him a couple of years ago, I was on the radio doing my daily radio show on KBAD 94.5 FM in Sioux Falls. And I'm in the booth and I see Gene walk into the lobby through the glass. I took the headphones off and I went out into the lobby and he saw me coming and, and he just reached out his arms, wrapped me up in this big, huge bear hug. Didn't say a word, just this big, strong man hug, which meant the world to me more than words could say. I mean, uh, just uh, really thankful for, for having Gene contribute so much to my music, my life, my career. And, I know that a big reason the Right to Rock became the, the fastest selling debut album in AM Records history in spring of 1985 was because Gene Simmons' name was on it. The Kiss, yeah. the Kiss Army bought that record because Gene produced it. And to this day, many of our fans are, are were Kiss fans first and then became Keel fans. Still enables me to be a part of that uh, Kiss convention circuit where I'll do special appearances. Last year I went to Helsinki. Finland for the Kiss convention in Helsinki, wow. and I do uh, a lot of those big Kiss expos and conventions, thanks to my relationship with Gene and Paul and, and all the guys in Kiss. So it's been a, it's been an amazing to be a part of a very small part, just a thread in that huge tapestry that that is the legend of Kiss and even Black Sabbath to a certain extent, to uh, to be associated with two of the greatest bands in history and to to have been a you know like i said a very very small part but a part nonetheless 
uh, and having those those bands be a part of my life and my history is an incredible honor. So, and one thing I think that you learned from Gene Simmons was he always, didn't he always have a lot of beautiful women around him? And so you actually started a band that you fronted and I didn't know this, you fronted an all female rock band. I'm looking at the picture of this band and I'm going, okay, like I have a hard time focusing when there's a lot of beautiful women. Was it hard to work with all these beautiful women in your, I mean, this is like a job for you, right? I mean, you're trying to, you have to like work with these women every day, right? Well, the, the difficulty was not so much in their, their, their gender, but the female musicians were different. Um, I've always been a fan of hot female rockers. Lita Ford uh, and I are good friends and have been for a long time. Joan Jett played on the Final Frontier album. I worked with the girls in Vixen, uh, co-wrote a song, the title track to their sophomore album, Rev It Up. So I had had a lot of experience with with female rockers and still do to this day. I toured Australia with Janet Gardner, the lead vocalist of of Vixen earlier Mm. this year. So I thought when Keel was done, in 89, I didn't just want to put five more guys together and you know call it Keel, even though everybody in the business, Gene Simmons included, said, Ron, just call it Keel. It's your name. Yeah. I didn't want to do that. I wanted to do something totally different. I've always wanted to make history and do cool stuff that nobody else has ever done, man. Let's climb a different mountain. And no, no rock frontman had ever had a hot, rocking, all-female backup band like basically like fixing with a with a male frontman yeah and uh it was an extremely challenging and rewarding project uh, we ended up with some great songs and some great vocals but they were very sensitive they when and they poured that passion and there's something that women can do it's something women have that men don't have and that passion that uh, passion is the best word for it. They poured that into the music and the shows and we worked extremely hard, did some great gigs and released a, an album that uh, I'm very, very proud of to this day. However, by then in the early nineties, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and, and other styles of music had begun to take over and it was very difficult to get that project where it deserved to be. Mm. So uh, yeah. it was a great moment in time and a great couple of years and some great work and yeah. some great people. It was an amazing experience, but uh, very proud of that. Now, I was not distracted by the tits and ass. <laughs> that, uh, I see plenty of that. I saw plenty okay. of that then. I still yeah. do. And, okay. uh, it, that, it was a job. And sure. I, was the, I was the captain of the ship. I was the leader of the band. And there are lines you don't cross. And uh that was never an issue or never in the way. The problem with fair game was that it was just a little too late to the party. And by then Nirvana and Pearl Jam had taken over. Still a pretty ballsy move. I like it. And here's another ballsy move. Now you go, you decide, all right, I'm going to try something totally different. And you, you started a country band, Iron Horse, right? No, that's not, no, that's not, you missed missed, a decade. I missed a decade. Well, what'd you do in the nineties? I didn't try. I didn't try. I would try something different. That's not how it goes, man. That's, when, when you're a rock star and you're on MTV and you're on the cover of the magazines and you are living the dream with Van Halen, Aerosmith, Bon Jovi, Motley Crue, and all of a sudden, all of that is taken away from you. All of that, all of a sudden, when Nirvana and Pearl Jam came along, it was no longer cool to be us. We were a laughing stock, not just me, but all the guys and all those bands 
from the 80s, some to, to a, a lesser degree. Scorpions and Bon Jovi did survive. Van Halen survived in one shape or another. But uh, for the... I lost you. A long, oh. hard fall. And all of a sudden, you're sitting there with a beach house, a couple of sports cars, a huge mortgage, wife and kids, and you have no income. You have no record deal. The tours are done. Record deal's done. You're not going on tour this year. You're not. It's it's done. What do you do? I started going to little roadside bars. Grew a beard, and I'd take my acoustic guitar to these roadhouses, and I'd say, "Hey, I'm Ronnie Lee." Didn't even use my last name. I'm Ronnie Lee. Hmm. Can I play? I'll play for tips. I'll play for free, just so I could play and sing and express myself. And nobody was paying attention. Everybody shooting pool or getting drunk or trying to get laid. But I was singing and I was playing and I was staying alive spiritually and musically. And I started going out to the desert with that acoustic guitar in my original home of Arizona. Oh, that's where I'm from. Mountains. And I would build a fire with a bottle of whiskey and a guitar, and I'd sit there, and these songs started pouring out of me. It was like, I think I'll try country music. Now, this, this music saved my life. When some of my other contemporaries and my peers were having to get a real job or o- overdosing on drugs, I was able to create and sing and write, and it sounded like country music to me. It was mm-hmm. songs about real life being broke, getting drunk, chasing women, songs about real life. And it was country music. Hmm. And I ended up joining, I ended up putting a band together that backed me up in these little roadhouse bars where I was playing. We made $28.50 a night per man. And I used my middle name, Ronnie Lee. And that was my name. People would come into these little roadhouse bars and say, man, you look like Ron Keel. And I go, never heard of him. I wanted to build from scratch without the trappings of being an 80s rock star or any prejudgments from anybody in my band. The guys in the band didn't even know. The guys in the band didn't know that I'd sold a couple of million records and toured with Bon Jovi and Van Halen. They had wow. no idea. The guys in my band did not know who they were That's backing crazy. up. That's crazy. I'm just Ronnie Lee. I'm just a guy who I, I want to sing. And I want to play. And we, we worked our way up through that circuit in 1995 to where we were the top drawing act in the Southwest at the casinos, the rodeos, the roadhouse, country bars. This is when Garth Brooks was king. Garth oh, okay. is still king. Yeah. But this is when country music was thriving. And I got to relive that Hollywood thing all over again through country music wow. and that club scene and in the rodeos and the casinos, they, they were packed and there was thousands of people line dancing and hot girls dressed up in this cowboy hats and boots and strutting their stuff on the dance floor and drinking heavy. It was, it was just, the country years were just as wild, if not wilder than the Hollywood years. So I got to experience all wow. of that for the decade of the nineties huh. when I was uh, a country artist and, and 
also had a lot of success with that music in TV and films. Uh, my songs oh. started appearing in TV shows like The X-Files and The Simpsons and uh, a lot of major motion pictures. And, and really, that's that's what paid the bills. Ended up oh. uh, joining a band called The Rattlers in 1997, which released a great album and toured the world as a country act. We did. We worked for the Department of Defense touring in Europe and the Mediterranean, entertaining our troops uh, on the military bases. So for a couple of years, so until 9-11, that uh, working for, for the Department of Defense and, and touring the world and making great money and, and getting to sing and play and entertain a really hungry audience, our U.S. military, uh, just so many great dreams come true during what we call the country years. Hmm. But I was never completely at home in either metal or country. Because still to this day, now the lines have been blurred a lot in the last decade or two. But metal was a strict framework of what you can say, what you should be, who, how you should act, how you should dress. Uh, you can't be a regular guy. You can't, you know, can't be the guy next door. You have to be a rock star. Country music was very much the same way. You can't say this, and you got to dress like this, and you got to be humble, and you got to talk with an accent, and you got to be yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. You know, I was was never really comfortable in either area or genre. The only time I finally found my place in music was when I combined both hard rock and country music into a style of music that I call hard rock and Southern country metal or cowboy metal, so to speak. And it has the songwriting sensibilities of country music where you can tell stories, you can sing songs about real life, but you do it with thunderous drums and screaming guitars and a lot of energy. And uh, that is where I have ended up. And that's where I've been the last 20 years with country metal, so to speak. Uh, you you put those two elements together for lack of a better term, it ends up being classified as Southern rock. Southern. And I'm yeah. With that. And that's your new album is a uh, South by South Dakota and it's a Southern rock covers, right? That's correct. We've just released a new album called South by South Dakota on highball music. And it is a celebration of the Southern rock tradition with cover versions of the iconic classics by Allman brothers Leonard Skinner, 38 Special, Blackfoot, Molly Hatchet, Marshall Tucker Band, and more. So question, um, your the first, is it, I don't know, would you call it the first single? Is Red, White, and Blue, it's a Leonard Skinner cover, right? You made a video for it. That, was, that is the first single from the new album, Red, White, and Blue. Extremely proud of that song. Our version of that song, the message that it, it says and sings, and also the music video for Red, White, and Blue, which we released a few months back that well, was filmed during the pandemic, during the lockdown, during what, what they were calling social distancing, mm -hmm. where the guys in the band could not be in the same room together, we've gotten over that yeah. in the months since. But at the time, I filmed each member of the band in a different iconic location, including Mount Rushmore, where I shot my footage. And I'm very proud of that video, Red, White, and Blue from Ron Keel Band. You can find that on our official Ron Keel music uh, YouTube channel and on the website and all those other links it's, can all be found at ronkeel.com. Yeah. It's interesting because it's a very patriotic song. Um, and I was talking to my girlfriend about this the other day. It's, it's interesting. We were talking about how like 
it's weird that being patriotic is like, it's considered, it's almost like not PC now. Like it's, it's considered like a, you're like a right wing, you know, it's a, it's a political thing to be patriotic, which is like weird to me. Cause like when I was a kid, everybody was paid, there was 4th of July and it was just like, you know, everybody was patriotic. Now it's like, it's almost like a political, if you have an American flag, you know, people assume certain things about you. Do you agree with that? Well, uh, well certain people are always going to assume certain things about me or about me or my music or what that song is all about. Yeah. And I am absolutely a patriot, if nothing else. And I don't have any problem flying the red, white, and blue and standing up for what I believe in. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. And I mean, you've done so much, so many amazing things. You've got quite the resume. Um, what do you think the secret to your success is with your longevity and being in all these different bands and um, having so much success over the years where, you know, I see a lot of people with a lot of talent that have, you know, kind of fallen by the wayside and you, you know, you hear like this one good album and then like they just disappear and you're like, why didn't they make any more? Like how did, what kept you going? I mean, cause it's tough. Like you said, Nirvana came along and I mean, you could have just given up at that point and got a day job or something, but you reinvented yeah, yourself. Yeah. Why is I, it? So it's just like that. the drive you think? There's two things, Chuck. It's not rocket science. First of all, you got to stay alive. Okay. And I've been <laughs> lucky helps, enough yeah. to stay healthy, and I'm still alive. Whereas a lot of my peers and friends and people that are younger than me are no longer with us. So I'm still alive, and I'm still healthy, and I never stopped. I never quit. I uh, never considered giving up. Now, there, there are always ways to evolve and change. And people will ask me, uh, about reinventing myself. How did you do that? And I, I do a consulting thing and I try and pass on some of the knowledge and experience, hmm. whether in, in meetings or interviews like this one, how did you reinvent yourself? And the secret to reinventing yourself is not to lose what you had. It's to add to it. You're not subtracting. You're adding. I am still all the same guy, all the same stuff that I was and had. I still have it. And I still am that guy. I've just added to my resume, so to speak, or my character, or my my toolbox sure. with things like the radio show, different styles of music, TV and film work, sessions, my subscription platform at patreon.com slash Ron Keel, where we, it's literally a modern day 21st century fan club. It's the Keel Army. We call them Keelaholics. And uh, you just continue to add to what you do in order to succeed but it all starts with the music. That's why I still practice hours a day. That's why I, why I still pick up the guitars and the microphone on a daily basis. And, and it's, it's all about the music. None of this other stuff, my book, my radio show, my consulting activities, my subscription platforms, anything that I do, the recording sessions, uh, none of that would be possible if I wasn't at first a singer, a musician, an entertainer and a storyteller. Yeah. And are you also uh, an actor? Because I, I heard that you were offered some roles in the eighties, but the, you turned them down because they were like rock star roles. You know, like you wanted to play the villain, but you, no, I know no, you I never, did. I, I, I never turned a role down. That, I saw uh, it I got, in an interview. You said that I got passed on a few oh, times. Okay. I didn't want to, I didn't want to be typecast. As yeah. The, yeah. You know, the, the token rock star, but I didn't turn any roles down. Uh, I needed the money at the time, especially after the, after the fall, so to speak. And I did a few movie roles and uh, a few television guest appearances and things like that. Truth is, I wasn't really good 
at acting. Uh-huh. I've I've been always been much better at just being myself. And I, I enjoy that challenge. I just never was really good at it. I did study acting and I had a few roles and uh, it's much easier to be myself, even though a lot of the roles that I've played throughout my career as the metal 80s rock star or the the country singer or the metal cowboy uh, or the radio show host, these are kind of like roles that Mm -hmm. you assume, but still... The most important thing about any of those roles is that I just be myself. I think that's probably the key to being a good actor too. Yeah. They have to sink themselves into that and and become that person. And it takes a lot of discipline. I certainly admire and, and respect some of those people that, you know, De Niro and Tom Hanks, even though I might not share their political views, but I certainly admire <laughs> their ability to lose 50 pounds for an acting role yeah. or to adopt a new accent or to have, you know, just all the stuff that they they go through to 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 portray those characters. For I sure. find it much easier just to come on the Chuck Shoot podcast and be myself. I love it, man. Is there any um, roles, whether acting or musical? I love these ones, like musical especially. Like I know Black Sabbath, you were close with that. Is there anything else that you were close to? Like either you 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 almost made it a, a, a job, or you turned something down, or anything any sort of offers like that that we don't know about? Yeah. Yeah, there are, there are a few. Oh, there's you got to give me these then. This is good stuff. Yeah. There, there's a few. Um, Skid Row. When no fucking way. Were, really? They were, looking for, they were looking for a singer. And um, I was friends with Jack Ponte. Still am. Jack Ponte was one of their mentors and part of that Bon Jovi jersey crew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was on tour with Keel in 87. And Skid Row and I, we, you know, we had dinner and I got to hang out with them in Jersey. And they came to the show. I believe it was the Meadowlands Arena. We were touring with Bon Jovi. And they were looking for a singer. And we were, I was holding the Meadowlands in the palm of my hand and just, you know, screaming my guts out and delivering the goods and at the top of my game. And after the show, the guys from Skid Row, and Ron, you're the man. You're the man. Oh, thanks. No, no, Ron. You're the man. I got a feeling they were asking me, you know, if if I would consider joining the band. Of course, I had an album on the charts and I was touring with Bon Jovi at the time. So mm-hmm. quitting Keel wasn't an option. But right. I, 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 they were looking at me like, you know, raising their eyebrows. That, that was, mm. That's a fun story. I don't know. But Sebastian, obviously, nobody was was better for that role. Speaking of roles, then Sebastian, yeah, on, no. on that first Skid Row record, that uh, and you mentioned Michael Wagner, yeah, he produced that record right after the Keel album, and uh, certainly one of the iconic albums of of, of that era. And uh, you know, I I, I might have blown a few opportunities. I do believe that the Black Sabbath, yeah, I I'd like to think that I could have done a good job at that gig. Mm-hmm. Had things turned out differently, but I wouldn't change a thing, man. I don't like to look back and uh, say what might've been, you know, I live for today. Yeah. I'm on, like I said, I'm on a one day contract. I'm going to live it up today while I can. And I always keep focusing forward every now and then I'll, I'll look back on the milestones and the anniversaries and the celebrations and, and all that. But really I think the best is yet to come and I'm concentrating on doing work today, tomorrow, 
next year that's as good or better than the work that I've done in the past. Did you, is it true you wrote a song for Alice Cooper and then he turned it down? And what, if so, what song was that? I don't think so. No. Okay. Uh, is it true that Randy Johnson, the, the major league baseball pitcher is a big fan of yours? I don't know how big he is. He's a big dude. Uh, but <laughs> I just heard that. I've never met the big unit. I'm yeah. a fan of his. You know, oh, okay. I heard, I heard that he was a Keel fan. I know he's a rocker. And yeah, I, yeah. I had heard that he was a Keel fan and, and me being from Phoenix and him pitching for the Diamondbacks, I'm pretty sure there was a lot of common ground. And Carrot Top, he's a fan of yours as well, right? Yeah, I mean, Carrot Top, he's my boy. I mean, oh, really? Carrot Top, Carrot Top <laughs> and I are good buddies. And uh, he, he grew up, like, you know, it's cool how a lot of, a lot of guys like that, Randy Johnson or Carrot Top or some of these big executives at these companies now, whether it's Facebook or, you know, Universal Music, they they grew up as Keel fans. Mm-hmm. And then when uh, it, it, it pays off for me in big ways, we just did uh, a Facebook ad campaign. I don't even know how I got the gig, but they used Cold Day and Hell, one of my Steeler songs in a major Facebook ad campaign, which mm. is really cool. Uh, the movie Men in Black 2. Yeah, that's right. The song in that film, Speed Demon, is in that film. It's not because we were going to them saying, hey, please use our song. The song was, what, 20 years old at the time or even older. Somebody, uh, one of the producers of the film was was a a Keel fan growing up and remembered us and chose our song to be in that movie. Carrot Top, when I moved to Vegas, he reached out to me and says, hey, man, I heard you're in Vegas now. Uh, I'm a big fan. Why don't you come down and see the show? And I, I went to see his gig, and he's a hilarious comedian smart cat funny guy and, and a, a huge rocker uh, and uh, he and i became good friends and uh, uh, so it's really cool how some of those relationships will, yeah. will come out of uh people that that listen to your music or you had some kind of impact on their their childhood or their their formative years no that's really cool one thing i i noticed about you looking at interviews and, and albums and things you're you've you really you've always had like a really distinct like style like with your clothes and stuff i saw an interview with you and i mean it looked like you were wearing an 80s heavy metal costume like you had the red pants and the the leopard print boots and the big hair and then i saw you know more recently though now you have like the cool um what do you call it? it's like the black leather cowboy who does your style like do you just pick all that stuff out yourself because it's yeah. so cool yes Absolutely. that hat it's like I almost wore the hat for the interview today, but it's tough to see the eyes. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I could read off the teleprompter if I wore the hat. <laughs> so, but uh, that is I, so uh, cool. I, man, I just wear what I think is cool, like anybody. I yeah. Mean, I, I, I don't have a stylist or anything. I, mean, I need to get some but, of your stuff. Where do you go shopping? I need to go to these stores. I don't see that at Target, so I don't know. Well, I I do have several uh, apparel companies that I work with. That I'd love to plug. Centervention Threads. This is a rock and roll gangstar hat here. This one is just one yeah. of my favorites. Rockandrollgangstar.com. You can see their logo on there. They are uh, absolutely killer. They make a lot of the uh, rock star clothing and apparel that I wear, but the black hats are, are made by Centervention Threads. Cool. Uh, the custom stage apparel, also the pants by Centervention Threads, the vests and such are uh, RSB Rockstar clothing. And I... I have a hand in designing that stuff, but I don't really micromanage it. Okay. Just, it's cool. Say, make me something, make me something cool that looks like it's all torn up and beat up. And I like it. Uh, they, they send it to me and it, I, I wear it and it, it looks cool. But uh, I think that that's part of the seventies or eighties mentality in me. I think you have to, to look the part, you have to dress for success. You have to, have to be larger than life in some kind of way. And I, I try and balance the 
larger than life with the guy next door. Yeah. Because as you can tell from this interview, I'm I'm just a regular guy working hard, doing what I love to do. But I think people expect or should expect their rock stars to be at least a little bit larger than life. And you have to have a character. And my right. character is the metal cowboy, man. Metal it's tattooed cowboy. right there on my arms. Awesome. That's my billboard. That's who I am. And, that, you know, this is, you know, that's that's my fashion statement. It's who I am. It's what I do. And I, I really, I, people can take it or leave it. I learned, I came to terms with the fact that I sold 3 million records, right? 3 million albums throughout the course of my career. It took me a lot of albums to achieve that number. But, you know, if you sell 3 million albums, and a lot of those are repeat customers. A lot of those people are people that bought the same, they bought every album I ever did. So, you know, you say 2 million people that I've, that I've sold to in my life, that means billions of people don't like you or don't want what you do. And, and I'm cool with that. Yeah. Uh, I, I have to please myself first and foremost. I have to look in the mirror and put myself to bed at night going, yeah, I, I like that guy. You know, I'm, I'm proud of who I am. I'm comfortable in my own skin. And I just want to be me and do me while, uh, you know, every day of my life from now on. If you don't like it, man, just move on. Scroll down to the next guy. And, and all right, but if you, if, if you want what I got, I've got some good music and I've got some stories to tell. And I've, I've got experiences to share. And I bring something to the table or to your speakers, or to, Absolutely. Your, to your concert event or venue that I think you know, my goal is to, to make you feel something, make you realize, man, I really like that. That, 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 that was fun. And I enjoyed myself. I want to hear that again, or I want to see that show uh, again, or you know, touch people's lives in some way. Sometimes it's more profound than that. Sometimes you really do make change. You can save lives. Music can stop a bullet. And I've seen it happen. I've saved people's lives uh, from suicide with the strength of my music, the, the message behind songs like The Right to Rock, the attitude and the emotion that, that I try and convey. It's called strength. It's confidence. It's empowerment. It's saying, man, I'm just a, a high school dropout, a kid who really didn't, I'm not really good at anything else, but this, and the only reason I'm good at this is because I worked really hard at it. You can do the same thing. That's you know, really cool. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't yeah. give in. Be yourself and follow your dreams. One day your dreams are going to follow you. Absolutely. Very inspiring. Well, I always end with a charity. I, I'm sure there's, hopefully there's a charity that you work with or that you've promoted in the past. Absolutely. One that is very near and dear to my heart is guitarsforvets.com. Oh. We supply guitars and guitar lessons to veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. Oh, that's and great. And so far, we, we've, we've uh, tens of thousands of guitars and veterans have been touched by this cause. And it's, uh, it's amazing to put the healing power of music into the hands of our heroes. And I encourage everyone to visit that okay. website, guitarsforvets.org. I can't believe 60 some episodes I've done and I've never heard of this uh, organization, all the rock stars I've interviewed. That's great though. I'll definitely have to check that out. I'll put it in the notes. Uh, and where else? Ronkeel.com or is it ronkeelband.com? I believe is it, or do both work to get to your website? Ronkeel.com has been there for over 20 years. It's going to be there for another 20 years, long after your AOL instant messenger or your MySpace <laughs> or your Facebook or yeah. your Insta this or Insta that is long gone. 
the conventional website is always going to be ronkeel.com. Now, ronkeelband.com is valid. It takes you right to the band page. Yeah. Ronkeel.com is your one-stop shop for everything I do. The videos, the tour dates, the Patreon platform where we provide exclusive audio and video content for $6.99 a month. That's 23 cents a day. I'll be your huckleberry. I really bet it is like a perpetual <laughs> meet and greet with you know, over 500 people now okay. that we have uh, as members. And uh, it's like an all day, all night meet and greet. But I'm there for my people. They're there for me. And it's an, it's an amazing community of people where I share all the cool stuff that you're not going to see on Facebook or YouTube or anyplace else. You're going to get it on my Patreon page. You can find that. And lots more at ronkeel.com. Awesome. Any other future plans? Anything uh, tour dates coming up or? Well, I've got I've got dates next year. We're, we're okay. uh, always attempting to bring the music to the people. Good. I was very fortunate this year that I was able to tour Australia and do the Monsters of Rock cruise both before the pandemic slash lockdown quarantine. All that uh, we did the Monsters of Rock cruise in February, the Australian tour in March, and. I've been able to, to do 24 shows this year, which is more than a lot of my peers have done hmm. for various circumstances. We're in South Dakota. We were able to do the Sturgis Rally. I've done shows in Pennsylvania, Missouri, Minnesota, and South Dakota, as well as those overseas dates that I mentioned. And I am ready, willing, and able to go wherever it takes to entertain people. I love that energy that we get from those live concert events. But in yeah. the meantime... This month, we're going to relaunch the Ron Keel Band live stream. This was an online full production, big show concert that we did in August for over 12,000 viewers. Now we've remixed and remastered the audio and relaunching that on my Patreon page as, as an exclusive for the members there in October. So stay tuned to the Patreon page. If you want to see us live in concert, this is as close as you're going to get unless you know, who knows what's going to happen with our industry. Yeah. I'll hope for the best, and we want uh, we want to get back out there and entertain people and do it however we possibly can. I hope to be at the front of the line when they open the doors. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Ron Keel. I appreciate you coming on here. Thank you, Chuck. I appreciate you. Thanks for the opportunity, and thanks your listeners for putting up with me for the last hour plus. Lift the rock! <laughs> All right. See you later. Okay. Bye-bye. So that was Ron Keel. Uh, from Keel or the Ron Keel band, he's an intense dude. I would uh, I would not want to argue with him. I think he could kick, probably kick my ass. Uh, so make sure you go to his website. All the links are in the notes there below. Uh, follow Ron on social media. Follow me if you want. You can subscribe to my show wherever you listen on YouTube. Uh, that way you'll never miss an episode. And if you enjoy the show, you want to support me, you can either uh, share the episode on social media, uh, write me a nice review of the show on iTunes, or if you want, you can just donate cash on my Venmo. That's an option, too. Uh, thank you all for listening. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day or night. Remember to follow those dreams like Ron did. Take his advice. Shoot for the moon.